Let us pray for receptive hearts during the reading and preaching of the Word of God. Holy Spirit, we ask that you apply the Word to our hearts and open our eyes to the truth of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the great sacrifice he made while we were yet sinners. In his name we pray, amen. Our New Testament lesson is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, beginning with verse 31. The Gospel of the Lord. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, We will will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The sun remains forever. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the gospel of the Lord. We're going to see how much of this sermon I can get through. I got a cold last week, and so my voice is pretty much shot. It's going to be my first ever whispered sermon. Um, so you can lean forward. Um, I've shared this story before about Johnny Lee Clary and Wade Watts. Johnny Lee Clary was born in 1959 to a deeply racist family. Uh, His uh, life and upbringing was very violent. At the age of 11, he watched as his father committed suicide. His mother threw him out of the house, put him on a bus to go live with relatives, and he eventually ended up on the the streets of of East L.A. and got involved in gangs. And at the age of 14, Johnny Lee Clary was desperate to find connection with a father. And so he wrote a letter to a man named David Duke, a white supremacist leader. And a few days later, there was a knock at the door, and a couple men were there, and they said, Son, you need family. We're your family. And so at the age of 14, Johnny joined the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And eventually, he went on to become Grand Dragon of the Imperial Knights of the Ku Klux Klan over the state of Oklahoma. And at that time, in 1979, he was actually engaged in a radio debate with the Reverend Wade Watts. Uh, Wade Watts was the president of the, the state chapter of the NAACP. He had marched with Martin Luther King Jr. He Uh, Later had a nephew, uh, Republican Congressman J.C. Watts from the state of Oklahoma. And at the beginning of that radio interview, uh, Johnny was waiting in the studio and Wade Watts goes up to him and walks right through the door and grabs his hand and shakes his hand. And, 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 you know, Johnny was caught off guard. He was was expecting, you know... uh, in, uh, a militant in an African dashiki with a Kalishnikov over one shoulder and a button that says death to crackers. And right there is Reverend Watts in a polished suit and tie with a Bible, shaking his hand and he's saying, hello there, Mr. Clary. I'm the Reverend Wade Watts. And I just want to tell you that I love you and Jesus loves you too. At this point, Johnny just shook hands with him. He broke a major clan rule, and so he's sitting there staring at his hand in, in utter disgust, intending to insult him. And Wade Watts just says, don't worry, Johnny, it don't come off. 
Wade Watts would undergo a great deal of suffering in the years that followed. Johnny would call him names, and he would just respond and say, God bless you, Johnny. You can't do enough for me to make me hate you. I'm going to love you, and I'm going to pray to Jesus for you, whether you like it or not. And his house was trashed. Uh, His kids were harassed, threatening phone calls. A few years later, Johnny Lee Clary and his friends set fire to Wade Watts' church. We got some photos. We got a photo of Wade Watts here, just to give you the visual. And then let's go to that next photo of Johnny Lee Clary. Yeah, that's enough of that one. Thank you. We're going to talk today about how people change and how the gospel accomplishes that. And we're going to look at a passage in Paul's letter to the Galatians that is going to tell us how people change. Uh, It's Galatians 5. We're going to look at verses 13 through 25. I'm going to read it if you could follow along because there's incredible power in this message about Jesus. This is beginning in verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit is what is contrary to the sinful nature or the flesh, it says. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy drunkenness, orgies, and the like, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is God's Word. Now, my understanding of this passage is a little different than what you might have heard elsewhere. And so what do we have to keep in mind when we look at this passage? First, we need to keep in mind what flesh has meant in this letter. Every time that you saw in the old New International Version translation, that phrase sinful nature, that's not actually what it says. What it says is flesh. It's the Greek word for sarx. And uh, it's used three times in this letter in three different passages, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. And each time it is used in contrast to spirit or the spirit. Um, what does it mean in each of these instances? Well, the first time, uh, you know, the actual word sarx just means, it means flesh. Uh, it's used, in, Paul uses it in Romans 2 to refer to the foreskin that is removed during circumcision. And he seems to be using it as a representative of the circumcision group, the kind of self, uh, self, uh, self-salvation that he's been speaking about. So each time, you know, in chapter, 
you know, chapter 3, he asked the Galatians, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Uh, the Spirit there, he's talking about beginning with the gospel of free salvation through Jesus alone, uh, being clothed in his righteousness and forgiven. That's beginning with the Spirit. And, and, and continuing with the flesh is, in their case, they're going back to their legalistic religion of saving themselves and rescuing themselves functionally by looking to their own resources to, to help. Uh, then in chapter 4, we see the same contrast between flesh and, 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 and spirit. Uh, he contrasts Hagar and Sarah in the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures as examples. Uh, one as an example of self-salvation, the other as an example of the gospel. And realize for Paul, self-salvation can look like different things, you know, because he, he says, you know, they're returning to self-salvation, they're returning to the flesh. Uh, and by that, you know, they're returning to a form of self-salvation, even though before it was pagan self-salvation, trusting the things of this world to get me what I need, and now it's a, a kind of rigorous, legalistic, religious self-salvation, but he says the same thing. And so in that contrast, it's between self-salvation versus believing the gospel and looking outside yourself to the good news of what Jesus has done as your resource. And so we have then in Galatians 5, this same contrast coming up a third time. And is it possible that he's using spirit and flesh in a completely different way in this passage as opposed to the chapter before and the chapter before that? That is possible. But uh, the way I often hear this passage presented is, is talking about the, the spirit and the flesh, the, the idea that you've got two dogs in, inside of you, and one's an evil dog and one's a good dog, and you've got to not feed the bad dog but feed the good dog. It's the two-dog you know, anthropology. And, and I'm not saying there's never a time when that illustration might be appropriate. Maybe there is. But um, that assumes that Paul means completely different things in this passage than the way he's used this dichotomy every other time in the book of Galatians. So as we look at living by the Spirit, uh, we have to understand that, that assuming Paul is keeping a coherent train of thought in this letter, that by Spirit what he means is looking outside yourself to Jesus and all of his rich and radical grace to you, the scandalous gospel of grace. And contrasting that with the flesh, not meaning simply your internal impulses, though that's certainly included in it, but those internal impulses as part of a larger self-help program of fixing yourself, rescuing yourself, saving yourself from the effects of the fall. And so we're going to look at it through that lens and see if it actually makes sense. Now, flesh Maybe internal temptation translated sometimes as sinful nature, but it's that internal impulse to try to rescue yourself, which latches hold of all of our physical uh, weaknesses and brokenness. Um, but if Paul is pointing us to the gospel, then going back to somebody like Johnny Lee Clary, the message to him is not, dude, you've got to stop feeding the bad dog and start feeding the good dog. Look inside yourself. Feed the right doggy. You know, that's, that's not the message. The message is this. It's, Johnny, you are genuinely feeling the brokenness of this world. You were abandoned by your dad. You were abandoned by your mom. You have been treated like garbage. Of course, you feel marginalized, undignified, weak, and powerless, and you're looking for family, and you're looking for love. You have suffered in this life, and you're looking for someone to blame, but your anger and your hate and your violence, which you are looking to to rescue you, your racism, which you are looking to to rescue you, to make you one of the, the white nation, one of the people that matter, 
the people who are good, that are going to take, take America and, and, and lead it to the next generation. You know, all of that anger, it's a means of self-salvation. Uh, and it may give you short-term results in terms of it may actually help you feel powerful. It might actually help you feel important. It might actually help you feel like you're one of the good people and not one of the, the bad people. But long-term, it's going to destroy you and it's going to destroy a whole lot of other people around you. Uh, there is a better Savior, Johnny. Don't look inside yourself for a good dog to feed. You will not find one there. Look outside yourself to Jesus, that Spirit. He loves you. He came to rescue people like you and people like me because the gospel has the power to change the heart because Jesus has the power to change the heart. You see, flesh is this internal drive to rescue ourselves through our human effort. And spirit is the Holy Spirit-driven call to look outside of ourselves functionally to Jesus as our Savior. Not just the Savior we name on Sunday morning, but the Savior we trust moment by moment every time we face temptation in this life. So, remember what flesh means here. Remember what spirit means. Now, what do our efforts at functional salvation, what Paul calls flesh, uh, what do they actually produce? We're going to look at that, but first let's notice the dynamic here. Self-salvation can look like a lot of different things. St. Paul contrasts the multiple works of flesh with the singular fruit of the Spirit. There's only one fruit of the Spirit. It looks like about eight, eight or nine different things, but there are a lot of works of the flesh because there are a lot of ways to rescue yourself in the face of need, and it manifests itself as a whole lot of different ways to sin. Uh, he says in verse 19, 20, 21, he says the acts of the sinful nature, that is the, the, the acts of the flesh, the acts of self, self-rescue, self-salvation, are obvious. Sexual immorality impurity and debauchery. Sexual immorality refers to any sexual uh, expression outside of marriage. Uh, He talks about idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage in the car driving down Lindell Boulevard, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. It is quite a list. And chances are we're all on this list somewhere. Because he has classic sins that any former pagan would have recognized. In the Galatians, they were mostly had come out of paganism to Jesus. Uh, some of them were Jewish, most of them were Gentiles, from what we can see here, and and they would have recognized a lot of the things on this list. They would have been involved in drunkenness and orgies and sexual immorality and witchcraft and impurity, debauchery, idolatry. That's bowing down to statues and worshiping them as if they're God. Uh, they knew all of this, but Paul also includes stereotypical sins of religious people. Did you pick that up? Right there in this list of the big shameful sins are the respectable sins, like jealousy. Um, I think religious people are pretty good at creating factions, I found. Religious people can be really good at dissension. Uh, can be really good at ambition. We can be good at envy. When I see other people's churches that are thriving and, and have all these cool programs and a parking lot and, 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 and all this money, uh, I know something about envy. I am on this list. Fits of rage. I'm familiar with those. Paul gives us a list that covers everybody's sins. If you're not on one part, you're, you're, you're in another part because all of us experience the effects of the fall. All of us are trying to rescue ourselves from the effects of the fall. And that's always what drives our sinful 
impulses because we're looking for salvation, release, rescue, comfort, salvation from the effects of the fall. So how do these unhealthy patterns or behaviors work as functional saviors, that is counterfeit Jesus's? Jesus' sigh. I don't know. Let's take some examples from Paul's list. Drunkenness is a pretty easy one to identify. Um, pretty pervasive one. Some of us know a little bit about that. And it's not that alcohol is a bad thing. Paul, you know, the Psalms say, Psalm 104, that God gives wine to gladden the hearts of men. Jesus' first miracle was turning water to wine. But drunkenness, you know, there's a time where when you're really feeling the isolation and the sorrow and the corruption of this life, when you feel the rejection that comes in this life, when you feel your sense of failure, you feel your sense of shame and it's weighing you down and it's crushing you and you don't think you can go on another day, you don't think you can make it. And there's a bottle of something that if you drink enough of it, it will make you feel numb. It's using it as a functional savior to rescue you from the effects of the fall. And yet it destroys you. Sexual sin. Um, I don't think there's anybody uh, in this church who hasn't been impacted by it in, in some way or form. Um, you know, alcohol is maybe not your thing, but it, it, it's, you find yourself continually falling into some form of sexual sin because you're maybe immensely lonely and you're trying to rescue yourself from the loneliness or you're feeling the effects of the fall and you're looking for comfort and you're doing things that you know God doesn't want you to do and you you feel like you can't stop because this relationship is what you're using to rescue yourself from the emptiness. It's become a form of self-salvation from the loneliness and an attempt at self-rescue or what Paul calls flesh. And that means that the sin you might need to be confessing is not just the the sexual sins on the surface, but the underlying idolatry of self-salvation that lies behind it that says, Jesus, I am going to let go of your hand and grab onto this other person's hand because they're the one that is going to make me feel the way that you want to make me feel. And so we bow down to something that's not God, and we trust it functionally to be a Savior and therefore Lord. Let's talk about jealousy. Imagine you're at a party and your significant other is enjoying a conversation with a a group of attractive people, some of them of the opposite sex, and one of those is seemingly very, very attractive. And so you feel that anxiety and insecurity rising up inside of you, and so you start flashing your partner the evil eye. You're you're glaring at them. You're, You're trying to send them a message to back off that it's not okay, and it's your insecurity that's fueling all of this through your jealousy. You're, you're trying to protect your relationship, and that angry, agitated worry that may end up sabotaging the entire relationship is actually your fallen nature, your flesh, trying to guard against an effect of the fall, trying to rescue your relationship uh, from a threat. Uh, you don't want to lose this person, and your jealousy is functioning as a means of self-salvation at that point. Or let's look at hatred. Uh, you know, the 2017 white supremacist rally in, in Charlottesville. That's my alma mater. It's my old stomping ground. That's where I became a Christian. And, uh, you know, you consider the spiritual reality that underlies all of that hatred. We see the hate and the racism and the white supremacy and the toxic tone on social media. And we see young white men carrying tiki torches from Home Depot and making Nazi salutes. Uh, but they've convinced themselves they're the real victims. And their hatred is just a part of and an 
an outflow of a much larger process of self-salvation. They're purchasing an identity of significance for themselves so that they can be one of the true Americans, the true people, the Aryan race, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Hatred in that sense, racism in that sense, it's just another work of the flesh that is very destructive to a lot of people because it's a means of self-salvation that is purchased at the cost of the other. Or let's talk about selfish ambition. That also makes the list here as a work of the flesh, a work of self-salvation that latches onto our fallen impulses in order to rescue us. Selfish ambition promises uh, to save you from the effects of the fall. It promises that that you'll become somebody significant. It says, if I try hard enough and I work long enough, and I pour myself into my career long enough, then, then I'll come out on top, and I'll be better than other people, and I'll have a better house and a better neighborhood with a better car and a prettier spouse. My kids will go to a better school, and I'll become one of the better people. And it's all self-righteousness. It's a desire to purchase my significance through my own human effort. And God may call you to be very successful. God may call you to be less successful Uh, But when you start putting aside the things that God says are actually essential to living a life that flourishes and that is healthy, then when when you find yourself neglecting your family for your career and you're neglecting your devotional life and you're not really interested in a life of prayer or meditation on God's word and you're not being public about your Christian faith with those around you and you're not really doing the work to build Christian gospel community within your church and within the networks and relationships that God has given you because you're pouring everything you have into your career because you think that what will validate you as a woman or as a man uh, is, 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 is success. And it's functioning as a competing savior, a competing Jesus. You're looking at it to make you feel the way that God wants to make you feel. It's self-salvation. So Paul says in verse 13, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Don't use your freedom to try to rescue yourself over again, day in and day out. Herman Melville wrote in Moby Dick, Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly in need of mending. What is it these functional saviors produce? They promise comfort, they promise control, they promise success, they promise significance, they promise to rescue you from the effects of the fall. But what they produce, look at verse 15. Paul writes, if you keep on biting and devouring each other. Watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. See, it's always the wide path, Jesus says, that leads to destruction. And that's the the real tragedy. You look to your career to rescue you from the effects of the fall. and, And when you lose that career, you become a zero in your own estimation. You may become the top of the totem pole for a season, But you might lose your wife or your husband. You might lose the love and affection of your children. You might lose your integrity. You might lose your relationship uh, practically with God. You may end up sitting behind the desk, tapping your pencil in your executive suite one day, dreaming about your next affair. And you will have gained the whole world, Jesus says, and yet lost your soul. Functional self-salvation the opposite of the gospel. It's turning away from Jesus to grab a hold of someone else or something else. And that's why Paul puts it in such stark terms. In verse 21, he says, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom 
of God. Friends, build your life on the gospel because what self-salvation produces, whatever that looks like in your life, what, what the flesh produces ultimately is destruction. And so I want to turn instead to the alternative that Paul presents to us. He calls it the Spirit, and what that means throughout this letter is the gospel of Jesus, external to ourselves, looking outside yourself to believe the good news, to believe that Jesus is your rescuer. He has saved you, and he will rescue you in the moment because he is a faithful high priest who loves you deeply. You're the apple of his eye. You are, you are his bride, and he's never going to let go of you because it says that you belong to him. While the acts of the flesh are many, gospel fruit is singular but overflowing. Paul is saying when you get the gospel, there's something that happens. And as you get the gospel, it changes inside of you. Not instantaneous, not all of a sudden. It's gradual. It develops over time just like fruit develops slowly on a tree or on a vine. It's the freedom from slavery of self-rescue and sin. And as you believe the gospel in specific situations, the things that flow out of you become increasingly beautiful. And he lists some of them in verses 22 and 23. He says the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is just one thing. What that one thing looks like is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. How are these growing out of believing the gospel? Friends, all of these fruit of the Spirit follow the first one. The fruit of the Spirit, first and foremost, is love. The one Paul emphasizes more strongly here. Love is putting your sister or brother's best interests in front of your own. Loving them as yourself. It it doesn't mean putting their wants above your own, but putting their soul above your own and caring for them. Paul says in verse 13 not to indulge the flesh. In other words, don't try to rescue yourself here through your own means, human or otherwise, but rather serve one another in love. These two are linked. If you're trying to save yourself, if you're trying to rescue yourself through human means, by definition, you are not focused on loving another person. Even if you feel great affection for that person, You might just be using them in order to meet your own needs, to rescue yourself from the effects of the fall. It's it's only when you get the gospel and believe that your Lord is holding you securely in his arms and he's he's not going to drop you, that you'll have the freedom to set aside your own interests and to give your sister or your brother the love and the care that, frankly, they need, whether they ask for it or not, and to do it for their sake and their well-being. For me, I always said the last ripening fruit of the Spirit was gentleness. Um, My personality type is by nature blunt, direct, clear, lacking in gentleness. I was always much better at speaking the truth than I was at speaking it in love. Uh, I was focused on getting things done accomplishing things, implementing plans, and gentleness was very slow to develop in me, and as I I think on what factors helped that gentleness really begin to develop and grow inside of me, I think a lot of it was just understanding the gospel on a much deeper level. When I felt I needed to be accomplished, I needed to be successful, I couldn't easily take the time to listen very carefully to someone, to cautiously figure out how to care for them. I couldn't be bothered to 
take the blame or to be the fall guy. I couldn't make time for somebody to know how best to communicate in a way that they could hear, in a way that wouldn't injure them. And it's only been as I've stopped needing to be successful um, that I've been able to actually love people uh, because I don't have to get results. I don't have to be a successful pastor. Jesus was wildly successful in my place, and, 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 and he has imputed that success to me. I am righteous in Christ. I don't have to measure up, and that has enabled me to actually have sensitivity toward people that I never had, gosh, not 10 years ago, definitely not 20 years ago. Um, that's the gospel. Uh, that's the spirit versus the flesh. And as I've grown in my confidence and my rest in the gospel, it's opened up in me the ability to actually care. And it's given me a degree of gentleness because I don't need results. Uh, because the gospel says I don't need them. Because I, if I've already got Jesus' resume, if I've already you know, fed the 5,000, raised Lazarus from the dead, and always did what pleases the Father, there's nothing I am going to do to embellish that resume. I'm free. I'm done. I've arrived. I can just love people and care for them. Because it's the gospel that creates the gentleness, because it's the gospel that opens up the pathway to learn to love. Um, it's the same thing with patience. Uh, whatever patience you have ever seen in me is the fruit of the gospel. Uh, because I don't have to get results. I can wait on God. God alone has the power to change the heart. Because the gospel is true, he's actually willing to change the human heart. And so I can pray and I can love, and I can look to God and trust him because results are no longer my obligation, but rather his. It's the gospel that opens up the floodgate to love. Um, you know, I think uh, a couple years ago, we saw this powerfully. Uh, I remember the seemingly endless efforts to remove the Confederate flag from the South Carolina state capitol. You remember that, that controversy? And uh, there were protests and marches and articles and journals and newspapers. And, and, uh, but it was entrenched. And, and for a lot of white people in South Carolina, that flag represented their culture and their history and their tradition. Uh, and they viewed it as, as a good thing. And yet, to a lot of people of color, it was felt to be a, a sign of subjugation, a reminder of slavery and of bondage. And uh, it wasn't going anywhere. And on the evening, you remember the night of June 17th, 2015, a 21-year-old white supremacist named Dylan Roof entered Mother Emmanuel, Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in downtown Charleston. The church was founded in 1816. The church uh, was the oldest historically black congregation south of Baltimore. And Roof walked in during a Bible study and prayer meeting, and he murdered nine members of the church including the senior pastor, state senator, Clementa Pinckney. And uh, Ruth confessed that he committed the shooting in the hope of igniting a race war. Six women, three men, ranging in age from 26 to 87, were murdered. Fathers, these were fathers, these were mothers, these were sons, these were daughters, these were grandmothers, these were very, very, very most important people in somebody's life. Every one of them, precious and two days later, the members of that church and the family members of those victims were able to confront Dylan Roof in the courtroom just 48 hours later. Anthony Thompson, the husband of a 59-year-old Myra Thompson, said, Dylan, I forgive you and my family forgives you, but we would like you to take this opportunity to repent and change your ways. 
Felicia Sanders, the mother of the youngest victim, 26-year-old Tawanza Sanders, also spoke. She said to him, Every fiber in my body hurts, and I will never be the same. The older Sanders survived the shooting by playing dead, and she continued, We welcomed you Wednesday night in our Bible study with open arms, and you have killed some of the most beautiful people that I know. And we said in the Bible study that we enjoyed you, but may God have mercy on you. The daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance told Ruth, You took something really precious to me. I will never talk to her again, but I forgive you. And have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But I forgive you. And that's what it took. A grieving community. Marginalized. Victims of atrocious violence. Grieving their loved ones. Turning around and saying, As God in Christ has forgiven my sins, I now forgive you. Against the gospel, the Confederate flag didn't have a chance. Within weeks, the South Carolina state legislature voted to remove it permanently from the Capitol grounds because the gospel, friends, the gospel in the lives of God's people, purchased by Christ, covered in his blood, belonging to him, filled with his grace and his beauty, his gospel, learning to believe the gospel in Instead of human resources, trusting Jesus to be their rescuer had the power to do what politicians and activists could not do. It's the power of the gospel. Scotty Smith talks about uh, the power that we see here. In verse 24, verse 25, Paul says, You belong to Christ Jesus. Scotty Smith says, So much of life is about the desire and the delights of belonging from the day we offered our first cry as newborns. Our deep longing for attention, attachment, and affection have been patently obvious. We crave to be known. We yearn to have a place. We yearn to belong to Jesus. And we do. Not owned like a new car, but cherished like a bride. For he purchased us with the price of his blood. Friends, if you have Jesus, you are not on your own anymore. You have resources that are more powerful than anything you're going to find in your flesh. More powerful than any bottle. More powerful than any relationship. More powerful than anything that's going to get you tripped up and addicted and idolizing something and miserable and that will destroy you. Jesus is the only God. Every other God ultimately demands your life. And Jesus is the only God who gives up his life for you. That you might belong to him. He did this through his love. Love is the power of God. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. And he knew it because that's what Jesus did for him and for me and for you. The love of God that can transform us. Even when we were his enemies, Christ died for us that we might be his friends. As Wade Watson, Johnny Lee Clary left after that interaction at the radio station out on the parking lot Wade had his baby girl there and he asked Johnny he said look at this little girl can you honestly look at this little girl and tell me that you hate her 
and he stumbled. But uh, he couldn't say yes. Um, But the abuse only grew. Johnny would go by his house. He would call him names. He would leave trash all over his lawn. When that got, got no response, he got some of his fellow clan members together, and they went out across the street from his family's home with his family there. They, 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 they set up a big cross and burned it across the street from his front yard. He went outside to him. He asked him, hey, boys, uh, you should have brought some marshmallows and some hot dogs. They knocked on his door to intimidate him. And uh, he said, hey, boys, it's, it's not October. You're already in your costume. Come back at Halloween. He always responded, though, with love, with warmth. Finally, they set fire to his church. They'd call him up trying to disguise. Johnny would try to disguise his voice. And boy, talking to him like he's an older man, talking to him like he's nothing. Say, boy, you better be afraid. We're coming to get you, boy. You don't know who we are, but we know who you are. And he'd just respond, well, hello, Johnny. A man like you takes time to call me. I am so honored. Let me do something for you. Dear Lord Jesus, please forgive Johnny for being so stupid. He doesn't mean to be so ornery. And then Johnny hung up the phone on him. But there were threats. There was harassment. There was a second fire at the church. One day, they watched him go into a restaurant and waited around a while, then finally went in when he had his food and surrounded Reverend Watts, these men in sheets, these clan members. And, and they told him, Boy, this restaurant is whites only. You better think long and hard before you eat that food because we're going to do to you the same thing you do to that chicken. Reverend Watts looked down at the chicken. He looked up at 20 clan members. He grabbed his chicken. He brought it up to his lips, and he kissed it. Even the clan members were laughing. By 1989, Johnny had become imperial wizard for the state of Oklahoma. He had been on the Oprah Winfrey show. He had been on Morton Downey Jr., if you remember those. Uh, He sought at one point to bring together a a convention of of like-minded people. He's going to bring together the skinheads and the white supremacists and the Aryan nation and the KKK. And he brought them all together for a meeting and he watched as they fought among themselves, as they accused each other of stealing each other's phone lists and members. And he looked at it and he saw all the hate in the room and he said, is this really the family I want to belong to? About the same time, it turned out that his girlfriend had been an informant to the FBI and had passed on incriminating documents to them and then gone into witness protection. Johnny resigned from the Klan in disgrace, and then they began targeting him, thinking that he had probably been the informant. Over the next two years, he went through one divorce and then another divorce, and he lost custody of his child. He sat at home one night with a bottle of alcohol and a pistol, just thinking, what is he going to do with his life? But instead, he found his way to a church. And when he walked in the church, he wanted to recoil because there were all these people of different races. And, and, and he had heard in that, in that church that Jesus had taken the blame for our hate and had paid the penalty for it so that he could give us new life. And over a season, eventually what happened is Johnny Lee Clary became a Christian. And he committed his life to Jesus. And he asked God to forgive him. And he he learned to begin to love. And after about two years as a Christian, he realized that there was a phone call that he absolutely had to make. And so he dialed the number. He remembered it. On the other side, Reverend Wade said, Hello, Johnny. I've been praying for you. 
And he told him what had happened and how he'd become a Christian. Asked his forgiveness, weeping in tears at what he had done to this man for so many years in the face of his ongoing love and compassion. And Reverend Wade Watts responded saying, Praise the Lord, Johnny. This Sunday, you're going to come to my church and you're going to give your testimony. And uh, Johnny was kind of freaking out. He's like, well, I I mean, if I can find it. Now, Johnny, you know where it is. You burned it down twice. Yeah. That Sunday, half the congregation did not show up because they thought it was a trap. They knew who this man was or who he had been. And yet for the half of the congregation that did, they, they were responding and listening to him. They gave him a warm, embracing welcome. They were shouting out, Amen. There were tears everywhere. Uh, they were praising God. And afterwards, at one point, he saw, he was on the stage, and he saw this one woman running toward him, and he ducked, and he didn't realize that she was actually embracing him and giving him a bear hug. And Reverend Wade's daughter who had been bitter all these years over the way that people had treated her dad, a pastor. Bitter all these years came forward that Sunday and committed her life to Jesus. In the last years of Wade's life, they became best friends. Wade mentored him, and Johnny Lee Clary was ordained as the only white pastor in the Church of God in Christ. Wade Watts, dying in a hospital, asked to see Johnny again. He called him my son because he had become the father that he'd always wished he'd have. Friends, that's how one Christian believed the gospel and defeated the KKK. That's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's the power to change the heart. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the gospel that changes us and makes us outward faced. And then beyond that, enables us to be your change agents in a culture, in a city that has so much injustice and so much evil. Oh, Lord, we commit ourselves to you and ask that you would awaken us with the beauty of the gospel of a God who dies for his enemies, that we might become your friends. Lord, we consecrate to you the elements on this table that you would preach.